Sorry about that, Billy. Hey, good morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I've been told that you should be familiar with this passage because it was part of the ears to hear thing a couple weeks ago. So if you've been doing your homework, then you should already know where this is. Maybe it's already the whole passage is highlighted already. 1 Corinthians 9. We've been in sort of a three-week series that we'll finish up today, uh, basically looking at places in the Bible where we see uncommon joy. Sources of joy that aren't necessarily the same places where the world says we should seek out joy. We talked first about the joy of the branch, which is found in recognizing that the vine will provide everything it needs to produce fruit. The vine dresser will discipline and sort of manage the organization of the vineyard. And all the branch has to do is abide, remain actively still, and then fruit will be produced in it for the glory of God and the good of other people. We talked last week about the joy of the best man. We looked at a speech in John 3 uh, that, that John the Baptist gives an incredible speech. And we talked about his willingness and his philosophy of ministry, which was to be deflective, completely dependent upon God and dedicated to the joy of other people. As he watched the bride and the groom come together, he sees himself as the best man standing to the side and rejoicing at Christ and his church coming together. And this morning we'll finish up this sort of mini series in looking at the joy of the bondservant. Now I will say as sort of a disclaimer, bondservant isn't really the right translation of that. We'll talk about it in a second, but it was the only word I could think of that fit that started with a B, so there you go. That's, uh, that's why we use that. And we're looking at uh, a passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where the Apostle Paul has laid out his rights and privileges as an apostle, and then after establishing his rights as an apostle, he kind of turns an interesting corner and says, but even though these are the things I'm entitled to as an apostle, I choose to waive them. I, I choose to pass on all of these entitlements, And he tells us why. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's read it together, starting in verse 15. He says this, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for who you are. It's so easy to focus on the things that you've done, and we can praise you and worship you for the ways in which we've seen you work. But God, we are most moved simply by who you are, by the truth of who you are, by the truth of your existence and your worth and your honor. God, we pray that you would be glorified this morning as we study your word, and we pray that you would speak to us as we study, that we would hear your voice that it would impact us, God, that we wouldn't just walk away, but that we would be transformed. God, we just pray for you to move in this place, that you would be honored and that we would be changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, a few years ago, uh, actually many years ago, when I was in high school, uh, my, when I was a senior, the youth group I was a part of at my church, they planned a mission trip. You know, it's kind of cool to be sending out all these missionaries, and they, they planned this mission trip, but it was, a, it was kind of an expensive trip, and I wanted to go on it, but I was, you know, I was from a single family, and we didn't have a lot of money, and so my youth pastor, he proposed this thing called a, uh, a slave auction. Now, I know that's not very pc these days, a youth pastor would not do a slave auction, but this was like 1980-something, and they put together this slave auction, and the idea was that high school students like myself at the time, we could sign up, and then members of our church could basically call us to come and do work projects around their house, you know, mow the grass or whatever. Well, my youth pastor told me about this. He's like, you can raise money for the, for the high school mission trip by being in the slave auction. I'm like, I'm not going to be in no slave auction. What are you talking about? This is America. You know, I'm a free man. I'm not going to go be nobody's slave. And, uh, and he was like, well, this is a good way to make money. And I was like, I'll find some other way or I won't go on your dumb mission trip, you know, whatever. Well, my girlfriend at the time, her name was Shelly, she signed up for the slave auction. And the very next day she gets a call from this little old lady in our church and she goes, would you mind coming over to help me? So my girlfriend goes over there. She gets over to this lady's house and the lady's like, would you mind helping me bake some scones? And uh, my girlfriend was like, no, I'll help you bake some scones. So they make up some scones, they put the whole thing together. And then at the end she goes, would you mind helping me eat these scones? And my girlfriend's like, well, you know, if you insist, I'll eat some scones. So they, they had like, you know, the cream and the, the lemon curd or what. They had like a whole little tea thing, whatever. And then at the end, she said, um, one last thing. Would you mind helping me water a couple of my plants? So my girlfriend waters a couple of plants. At the end, she'd been there for about an hour. This lady from our church wrote her a check for the entire cost of the mission trip. My girlfriend calls me. She's like, you got to do the slave auction. I'm like... I also need to do the slave auction. That's a fact because I can make scones, you know, like that's no problem. So the very next day I signed up for the slave auction and I get a call from a guy in our church. He's like, yeah, I'll come and pick you up at 530 on Saturday. And I'm like, all right, I don't know if this guy likes scones or not, but we'll see what happens. And uh, I lived in Phoenix at the time. This guy picks me up at 530 in the morning because that's the only time of the day that it's not like 175 degrees out. He takes me out into the middle of the desert. There's a, a lot with a chain link fence around it. And inside are about 400 of those big like helium canisters. You know what I'm talking about? They're like big metal. They look like bullets. He hands me some steel wool and a paint scraper. He goes, I really want to repaint these tanks. I just bought them. He's like, would you, just, would you mind just scraping? He's like, there's no way you'll get done. But just be out here today and scrape the paint off these tanks. And uh, I'm really sorry there's not much shade out here. But there is an old abandoned truck. So if you get too hot, you can crawl underneath it. And I'll be back for you at 5 o'clock. And the dude left, right? So I'm out in the desert with a paint scraper and some steel wool. And I start to scrape these, and I'm grumbling about scones, you know, and why couldn't I have, if I should have signed up first. And I, I scrape, I do this thing the whole day. When it got too hot, I literally curled up in a fetal position, like under the abandoned truck and wept for a few minutes. And then... Um, he comes back to pick me up at five. He's like, good job. Thanks for your help. I really appreciate it. And the whole time I'm just thinking like, it's worth it. Like all this work, all this work is worth it because at least I'm going to get to go on the mission trip. You know, we get to my house, I get out of the truck. He walks around and he does that thing you do with the valet, you know, where you like palm some cash real sly like, you know, he goes, thank you for your help. And there's money in his hand. I could see it. And I go, oh, you're welcome. You know, whatever. And I go into my house and I'm like, here it is the payoff. You know, I lean up against the door, 10, 20, 30, 40. Where's the rest of the money? There's just 40, there's four, he literally paid me four tens, 
which wouldn't even come close to paying the cost of this mission trip. I worked almost 11 hours, and I didn't hardly make any money, and I was so angry, right? I just remember being so furious. I wanted to, like, if I could have gone back and put the ugly paint on the tanks, I would have done that, right? Because what I felt like I was entitled to something different. I felt like I deserved more after all that I'd done and after all the work based on the, the experience my girlfriend had. At the very least, this guy should have paid for my whole trip. And isn't it amazing in our lives how often we're frustrated and angry because of our sense of entitlement? Because of the difference between what we think we're due or what we think we're owed and what we actually receive. There are lots of times in our lives where we feel this sense of injustice has been done, where something has gone wrong, and I remember sort of wrestling with that at the time, and I continue to wrestle with it today. When we talk about the joy of the bondservant and the joy of the slave, we're talking about a, a constant wrestling match we have because we do not like to serve other people when there's not a payoff for us. We don't like to serve other people when there's no payoff for us, and so it can be a little striking in 1 Corinthians 9 when you're reading what Paul says... He says, as an apostle, I'm entitled to all of these things, and yet I reject that. I, I waive it because I love the joy of being able to preach the gospel free of charge. And then in verse 19, he says something that absolutely blew my mind when I first read it. And it was several years ago. When I first read it, in fact, it, I was reading in the NIV, so I have it memorized in the, in the New International Version. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says, though I am free and belong to no man... I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Think about that for a second. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave. I choose enslavement to win as many as possible. In the time we have this morning, I just want to talk about what that means, what that can possibly mean to us. Because we, as Americans, understand freedom, right? We get freedom better than anybody. We are free people. There are those who died in order to obtain this freedom for us. They gave their lives that we would be independent. We celebrate our freedom as Americans. We just did that. On the 4th of July, we celebrate independence. We love our freedom. We love the ability to, to live in a place where we are free people. And more than just being free because of our nationality or because of our political system, those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are even more free. And in some ways, the independence we have as Americans is only a shadow of the independence we have because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. John chapter 8, John eight thirty six says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yes, we're free as Americans. Yes, we're free as Californians. But more so, we've been set free from death, set free from sin because of the saving work of Christ. Because he came and he took the sin upon himself. He died in our place. And through his death and resurrection, he extends to us, by his grace, resurrection life. We've been set free. Set free. We understand freedom. But there's a, there's a problem that creeps into our life. And there are actually probably some of you or many of you here this morning who are feeling some bitterness and some resentment, some frustration. Because as Americans, and even as Christians, sometimes we feel like it's our responsibility to cling tightly to that freedom, to demand that people respect our freedom, to demand that people give us what we deserve. And yet, you know, living in the world in which we live, there are a lot of times where what we think we deserve, what we think we're entitled to, is not what we receive. And as a result, there are lots of people who are discontent. You get frustrated on the freeway because you think you deserve to be one car length further than the guy who drove up the right-hand side and cut you off, right? You get frustrated at the mall because you feel like you deserve that parking place. Your blinker was on first, right? 
We get so frustrated, even in silly things, because of the difference between what we feel like we're entitled to. Paul says, look, I'm free. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, though I'm free, nobody owns me. He says, I'm free. We get that. We understand his freedom. And yet he says, I make myself a slave. This isn't innovation on Paul's part. This isn't Paul sort of coming up with something new. He's copying something that he knew very clearly from the work and ministry from the incarnation of Jesus. Turn with me to Philippians chapter two. In Philippians chapter two, we see Paul talking about the work of Jesus and talking about the mindset that we as his followers should have. Philippians two, starting in verse one, says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, Paul says, though I'm free, I make myself a slave. We understand freedom. Paul understood freedom. And yet what it, what it shows us in the person of Jesus, we want to talk about what we're entitled to as Americans or what we're entitled to as Christians. Think about what the Lord Jesus was entitled to as the creator of the universe. It says in Colossians 1 that all things were created by him and they're upheld through him. They're all for him. That he's preeminent. Jesus has always existed, the creator of all things. And yet it says in Philippians 2 that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, a thing to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing. By the way, what is it that Jesus made himself? He made himself humans. In the scriptures, humanity is equated with nothingness, dust. Jesus didn't consider his godhood a thing to be demanded, a thing to be insisted upon, a thing to be clung to, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself in the incarnation, but not just in the, you know, sometimes we think about Jesus and we go, oh, he made this incredible sacrifice on the cross. Can I tell you what? He did make an incredible sacrifice on the cross, but by that time he had already made an incredible sacrifice, and that sacrifice was simply becoming a human. The incarnation itself was a sacrifice. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't it crazy how often we get frustrated trying to cling to what we deserve, trying to cling to what we're entitled to, trying to hold on so tightly that our voice be heard and that people respect our opinions and people understand how hard we work to get where we are and what we deserve. And yet Jesus, in very nature God, emptied himself of those things for the glory of God and the good of people. What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 9 is not something he thought up. It's a pattern that was set by the Lord Jesus first. You know, a couple of years ago, I walked out of my side yard on the house. We got this little patio thing, and that's where our trash cans are. And I walked over to my trash can, 
And uh, I opened the lid to put some stuff in and immediately I knew something was wrong because the surface of my trash can was undulating and sort of rippling. It was moving on its own. Now, by, uh, just as a disclaimer, this is a gross story, okay? Just get ready for that. Uh, I, at first, my brain doesn't really know how to like, digest what I'm seeing and then I realize that the entire surface of my trash can is covered with maggots. I know, I know. Why am I talking about this in church? I have no idea. So, uh, it's covered with maggots, and I, I, somebody must, must have put some meat in there or something, but it's so full, in fact, that the maggots are getting close to the edge of the dumpster thing, and they're literally falling over the edge and down onto the sidewalk, and when they fall down on the sidewalk, it's so awful, you guys. Birds are flying from the trees down and eating the maggots off the sidewalk. Now, can you imagine how sad I felt for those maggots? The kind of compassion I felt. These poor little bugs who have no idea how dangerous it is to be so close to the lip of that dumpster and they're falling down onto the sidewalk where they probably think they're going to be on vacation for a minute but then they're getting eaten by birds. What a tragedy. Can you, if I had it in my power, don't you imagine that if I had it in my power that I would maybe transform myself into a maggot and go into that dumpster and learn the maggot language so that I could stand on the lip and say, my fellow brothers and sisters of maggotdom, keep away from the lip of this dumpster because if you tumble over, the birds will eat you, my friends, right? Let's be honest. Even if I had the power to turn myself into a maggot, I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't do that gross thing. Now, here's, here's the deal. I'm not saying that we're maggots, but think about the difference. Think about the sacrifice that would be required for me, a human being, to become a maggot, to go into that environment, to lead them to safety because of my concern for them. Now think about the greater chasm between God and his creation. Jesus looked at the earth and recognized that we were dead in our sin and he wasn't satisfied with that and he became a man. He humbled himself and became nothing. He became us. Now that's not to say that we're maggots. We're his children. God created us. He created us and said we were good, right? He loves us. He loves us so much that he would die in our place, that he wants to invite us into his family. I'm not saying we're worthless, but I am saying there's a great chasm that Jesus was willing to cross in the incarnation for the sake of glorifying his father and rescuing us. And yet here we are, his people, who claim to be followers of him, and we won't make tiny little sacrifices. We're, we're frustrated about our parking spaces. We're frustrated when somebody gets the promotion that we thought we had earned. Paul says, look, I'm free and belong to no man, but I make myself a slave. I make myself a slave. Now, slavery is a, 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 an idea and a concept that we don't really love to talk about, especially in America, because we have a shameful history with regard to slavery. There was a time period in our history, and there are many places around the world that have a similar history, but there was a time period in our country in which people were forcibly enslaved. Free people, made in the image of God, absolutely equal under God, were taken and forced into slavery. And I will say that when slavery happens forcibly, when people are oppressed, when people are hated, when they're taken against their will and they're forced into slavery, it is heinous and unforgivable. But slavery loses its, its wickedness when we choose it. It loses its wickedness when we choose it. I said at the beginning that the best title for this is not the joy of the bondservant because really bondservant is just a way that Bible translators have sort of cleaned up the real word. The word in the Bible that's translated most often servant or bondservant is actually the word slave. And we don't like that word because we don't want to think of ourselves as slaves because the word slave has an ugly connotation. But in the Bible, slavery is something that's chosen. Paul says, 
I choose it. I'm free, and I enslave myself to win as many as possible. You know, in Exodus 21, there is a provision made for a slave who's worked his time for his master, and he has the ability, if he so chooses, to come back to his master and enslave himself. There's a provision in Exodus 21 that says if a slave wants to remain in the household of his master, he'll have a, 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 an awl driven through his ear as a sign that he's a slave who's chosen slavery. By the way, there is no record in the history books of anybody ever choosing that, but the next time you're at In-N-Out Burger and you see that kid with the big gauge earring thing, just know that that kid has enslaved himself to In-N-Out. That's the way that works, you know? It's just a picture of that. There is a provision made for people to choose slavery. Paul says, look, nobody owns me. Nobody's in charge of me. I choose enslavement. I choose to be a slave. Galatians chapter five, verse 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. How often do we go, yeah, Jesus has set me free so I can live the life I always wanted. I can do whatever I want to do and just live a free life. Woohoo for me. Galatians 5 says, no, he set you free, not so that you can serve the flesh, but so that you can serve others. Jesus modeled this, right? In, uh, in John chapter 13, remember when Jesus washes the disciples' feet and they're a little bit put off by that because here's the Messiah, the one who came in the incarnation and now he's He's debasing himself to the point of washing their feet. And he says, if then, this is John 13, 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus modeled it. Paul understood this. Though I'm free, I make myself a slave. I choose enslavement. He takes the power away. It's funny, you know, sometimes when people think about Jesus and the cross, his crucifixion, they sort of equate that to murder. They go, oh, Jesus was murdered. He was martyred. What a martyr he was. He was killed. Listen, Jesus wasn't murdered on the cross. I don't know if you, if you know that or not. He wasn't martyred there. Jesus wasn't put on the cross by his enemies. Jesus went to the cross. He says in John, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to take it back up again. Jesus gave himself. He chose the cross. He wasn't murdered there. He chose it. And yet here we are, his followers, fighting for what we deserve, trying to keep our arms around all the things we think we're entitled to. And yet Jesus, the one we claim to follow, gave it up. He humbled himself to the point of death. He endured the cross. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, that makes sense, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says that he endured the cross, why? For joy. And that's a joy that the world doesn't know, my friends. It's a joy that the world doesn't describe to, doesn't understand the joy of the slave, the one who would submit himself, the one who would surrender his rights and what he's entitled to, what he deserves for the glory of God and the good of other people, the joy of the slave. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, the joy in seeing those who were lost given resurrection life. 
There are so many crazy places people are looking for joy. And yet joy can be found in surrender when you give up fighting for your rights and instead you live to serve. I love the fact that Paul says, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave. But he doesn't just say, I I make myself a slave. There's a purpose to it, right? The last part of that verse, he says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave, what? To win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. In Paul's opinion, choosing enslavement is an evangelistic strategy. An evangelistic strategy. You know, we got, we got all kinds of evangelistic strategy. In Paul's mind, he, he wasn't, do, you know, I mean, Paul could have said, in order to win as many as possible, I'm printing up some gospel tracts, and I'm going to hand them out at the beach, and I'm hoping people will read them and then call the number on the back. Paul could have said, in order to reach as many as possible, I'm going to invite them all to a Billy Graham crusade, or whatever the, an Apollos crusade, maybe, Paul would have said, Right? In order to win as many as possible, I'm going to create a soapbox and I'm going to stand up on it with a megaphone and I'm going to shout to people about how they're going to hell. In order to win as many as possible, I'm just going to be a good neighbor and a good friend and sometimes somebody might come over and say, hey, there's something different about you, stranger, and I'll go, yes, it's the Lord, you know, whatever, right? There's all kinds of evangelistic strategies. There's all kinds of evangelistic strategies. But the one Paul chooses is enslavement. Can I tell you why? to win as many as possible. Listen, standing on a soapbox does occasionally, by the power of the Spirit of God, does occasionally work. Handing out gospel tracts by the power of the Spirit of God does occasionally work. Being a good friend by the power of the Spirit of God does occasionally work. But you wanna know what evangelistic strategy works 100% of the time? Service. Because everybody on the planet likes to be served. Not everybody likes to have a conversation about apologetics where they're arguing about the inerrancy of the Bible and whether the Trinity actually exists. Some people do, but not everybody. Not everybody wants to come into a church. Not everybody wants to go to a crusade. Not everybody wants to read a gospel tract. But everybody on the planet loves it when somebody else does the dishes. Everybody on the planet loves it when somebody else shows up to fix a flat tire. Everybody on the planet loves it when somebody else runs the vacuum cleaner. It is a universal truth. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks you live on. It doesn't matter how much money you make, what color your skin is, what country you come from. All of us love to be served. You want to know how to share the gospel with everyone you meet universally? Enslave yourselves to them. What if Christians, what if Christians became a slave race? How would the world change? Paul says, I'm free. Nobody owns me. I make myself a slave. I make myself a slave in order to win as many as possible because everybody on the planet likes to be served. Everybody on the planet likes to be served. And yet so often we're trying these strategies that work some of the time and don't work all the time. Some people have kind of walked away from evangelism altogether. Listen, to win as many as possible, the broadest possible impact happens when Christians Stop trying to cling so closely to what they're entitled to, but empty themselves like the Lord Jesus. Choose enslavement to win as many as possible. My wife called me at work a couple of years ago, and she goes, Darren, you gotta come home. There's something crazy happening at the house. And I was like, what's up? She's like, the kids are doing this weird thing. I need you to come and and talk to them. And I was like, I need more information. She's like, well, they were playing this game. Just come home. So I go home. Turns out my, uh, my, kid, my wife was doing dishes. She's looking out the, the window into our backyard. And my kids, my youngest, my son, Will, and my daughter, Lily, he was three and she was five at the time. 
they're playing this game in the yard and my wife's watching them for a second until she realizes what's happening. Uh, my daughter has got our big, we have like one of those big family Bibles, you know, one of those, it's like, it needs backpack straps, it's so big, you know what I'm saying, it's a big family Bible. My daughter is chasing my son around in the backyard. She's got this huge Bible. She's chasing him, and when she catches him, she hits him with it, and she goes, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, right? And my wife's like, what is happening? You know, like, so she drops what she's doing. She gets in between. She's like, stop it, stop this immediately. What are you, why are you hitting your brother with the Bible? This is terrible. Why did you say to him that he's going to hell? And my son looks up, and he's like, we were just playing mean Jesus, and my wife goes, what? No, that's not a game. Where did you hear? That's not, you know, there's no such game as mean Jesus, you know? <laughs> my daughter goes, it was just a game, right? So I get home and I, and I talk to him and I said, listen, it's not a good game to play because there is no such person as mean Jesus, right? That person doesn't exist. There is no person in the Bible that chases other people with the Bible and hits them and says, you're going to hell. Like that person doesn't exist, But in the process of correcting my children, it dawned on me that in the world in which we live, when I tell people that I'm a follower of Christ, most often what people picture in their head is me and Jesus. When I tell people I'm a Christian or when I tell people I'm a pastor, they envision me and Jesus, someone chasing them with the Bible, hitting them and telling them they're going to hell. And can I tell you something? The reason that our world envisions me and Jesus is not because he's found in the pages of this book. The reason that our world envisions mean Jesus when we talk about Christianity is because we have taught them that picture. Because that's the role we've lived. Because we've lived like people who are constantly trying to hold on to our stuff and push other people away. Because we've lived like people who recognize how entitled we are and all that we deserve because we're children of God. Hallelujah. You know, whatever. And so the world goes, oh, we get it. You serve mean Jesus. But listen, mean Jesus doesn't exist except when he's embodied by Christians. Shame on us. Paul says, though I'm free, nobody owns me. I choose enslavement. I make myself a slave in order to win as many as possible. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, Jesus said to him, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think sometimes we think that's sort of like a recipe for magic, right? That if you start to serve, that at some point, there, you know, God's gonna jump in and go, ha ha, all of you who are serving, I'm lifting you up to be kings, Woohoo! you know? It's not, a, it's not a magical recipe. It's simply a statement about the economy of the kingdom of God. The economy of the kingdom of God. That those who want to be great in the kingdom of God stop pursuing empty things. Stop pursuing themselves and their own selfishness. Stop pursuing the power and the pleasure and the, the, you know, the, the prosperity. We stop pursuing these things that have no value in the kingdom of God. And when we empty ourselves, when we choose enslavement, not only are other people reached because everybody likes to be served, but God is glorified when we stop trying to take the glory for ourselves. Then every thought, word, deed, and attitude goes to glorify God, which is, by the way, the currency of the kingdom. The glory of God is the currency of the kingdom. The stuff we care about Gold and diamonds and all this. Listen, they paved the streets of heaven with gold. It's like heavenly asphalt. That's how valuable that stuff is, right? 
No, what has value in the kingdom of God is his glory. And when we become slaves for the good of other people, then what happens? All of a sudden our lives have value, not because of some magical switcheroo, but because we started pursue, to pursue things that actually have worth in eternity. Paul says, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave. And you and I have been given the very same responsibility, the very same call. I'll finish with this this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Oh, because sometimes it sort of seems like he died so we could live as good as possible for ourselves. No, he died that we would no longer live for personal benefit or even for mutual benefit, but for the glory of God. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors. God could have chose to reach the world any way he wanted, right? He could have taken over all the cloud formations. He could have taken over control of every jumbotron in Times Square, But you want to know God's chosen method to reach the world? Us. We are his intended vehicle for the message of reconciliation. He's called us to be ambassadors. And look, if you're waiting for a point this morning where I'm going to go, hey, raise your hand if you want to be an ambassador. Guess what? Uh, That's not how ambassadorship works. You don't get to volunteer to be an ambassador. In fact, in history, every, every person that volunteered to be an ambassador was a terrible ambassador. No, no. (laughs) <laughs> just think, what's the name of the basketball player that went to North Korea not too long ago? There's a good example. Uh, I can't think of his name. Thank you. Ambassadors are appointed. Ambassadors are appointed by the king to carry the king's message to the king's audience. If you're waiting for a chance to volunteer for ambassadorship, wait no longer. You don't get to volunteer. You've been appointed to ambassadorship to carry the king's message to the king's audience and to do it in the king's method. And the king's method was not to cling so closely to his godhood, but to make himself nothing, to humble himself to the point of death, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says, I'm free, nobody owns me, but I make myself a slave in order to win as many as possible. A beautiful evangelistic strategy and a true source of joy, the joy that Jesus found in enduring the cross for the good of other people and the glory of his Father. And that's the joy we're called to as well. Would you pray with me this morning? God, would you, would you help us please to internalize this? It can be so easy to understand something intellectually and to never make it about ourselves. 
to grasp a concept, to comprehend a philosophy, and be left completely and totally unchanged by the truth that's held inside them. Help us to be people that not only understand the sacrifice you made, but also understand the implications to those of us who would be your followers, that we would die to ourselves, that we would choose slavery, and that your joy would be in us, the same joy you had, the same joy that you give us, would fill us as we serve your people. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.